right, uh, welcome to Anecdotal Notes. I'm here with my co-host Steve Hyde. Hello, world. And of course, I'm James Aiken. And today we're going to uh, talk about investigation techniques. And and really, this is going to be uh, a generic sort of show in the sense that all of the techniques that we're going to talk about could be used to investigate really any unexplained phenomena. Now, both of us have much more experience, I'd say, um, as Bigfoot investigators. Okay, so obviously, because of this, we're going to lead from that area. Uh, but any of the things I'm going to bring out, they're things that are necessary that you as an investigator need to do. Now, I'm not saying I'm the be all end all of investigators. However, I am a trained police investigator and you know, I do understand how to preserve evidence and the things necessary to do a crime scene, to, to forensically analyze a crime scene, to preserve a crime, crime scene with photography, to take measurements, and to do that sort of thing. And honestly, I don't see too, really too much difference other than the interviews and interrogations part of it between you examining physical evidence of a Bigfoot, a UFO, of anything than would be just a normal crime scene, whether it be a burglary or a robbery. Absolutely, because any set of investigative techniques has an underlying philosophy behind them is what you're trying to accomplish. That's right. And uh, whether you're investigating a crime scene or a scene where any other type of activity may have happened, crime or not, the underlying philosophy of preserving evidence and trying to figure out what happened is the same. That's right. And uh, as an aside right here, I want to say this to the listener that, you know, on anecdotal notes, we're here as more or less an educational podcast, which is to say that while I want you to be entertained by our conversations, that is far secondary to me than us, you know, turning a $1,000 an episode in advertising or or trying to sell items necessarily or books or whatever. For me, this is more or less like a uh, guerrilla sort of pirate radio effort Mm -hmm. to get the word out that, you know, there are alternatives to the alternative that you're being presented for investigation in the Bigfoot world or even in the world of any genre of the paranormal investigatory sort of world where people go out and they look at unknown phenomena. So please just keep that in mind and and obviously we're bare bones. I'm going to say that, but that's okay with me. I'm going to make the audio uh, acceptable for you to easily listen to and we're working on that. So just keep it in mind please that this is about trying to achieve goals and not so much about trying to you know help you pull the covers up over your nose at night yeah and goals are going to be one of the things that we're going to touch on very early in this discussion because the establishment of goals is going to be extremely important in regards to anything else you do after that all right and that being said well let's let's go, I mean, we'll launch off, and I'll let you take the floor first if you want to, Steve, and then I'm going to jump in uh, as you go. Okay. Well, as Pat says, uh, this show is going to be about um, observations on investigative techniques uh, used out in the field, not only in Bigfoot investigation, but they're probably applied to not only pretty much any paranormal investigation you would be involved in, but any type of investigation you do for more mundane things, you know, like for instance, uh, uh, a police investigation. Um, But one thing I would like to touch on very early is that people, and just just isolating this into the, the, the realm of Bigfoot investigations, people tend to get into the Bigfoot community and make the decision to be active or somewhat active Bigfoot investigators 
and they begin to go out in the field and do things possibly trying to emulate other groups or maybe on the suggestion or advice of people who they've talked to about it. But one of the things they tend not to do is they do not sit down and try to establish exactly what it is that they're trying to accomplish with their activities. Mm -hmm. Now, there are different levels you can get into with this, and it all depends on exactly what it is that you're trying to accomplish, and they can fall into several different areas. You have people that go out into the field with the, the only thing that they're trying to accomplish is that they want to see one for themselves. They're trying to prove it to themselves. Mm -hmm. If they go out in the woods and they have an, an encounter or what they think is an encounter and it is enough to satisfy them that there is something to the phenomenon, then they may be satisfied at that point and, and stop investigating or they may decide to pursue it further. But the only standard of proof that they're having to meet with their activities is their own. And that can be as high or as low as they want. Right. There are other people out there who go into the field with the stated intention of trying to prove the existence of the phenomenon to the world at large. And <clears throat> unfortunately, what that involves is meeting standards of proof that may, may or may not be the same as your own. If I go out into the field and I get what I feel is a piece of evidence, photograph, video, and a, a cast of an imprint, or a piece of hair, or whatever it may be, and I look at it and I have my standard of proof and I look at it and say, man, this is pretty good stuff. Well. When you're trying to prove the phenomena to the world at large, you have to meet the standards of proof of the world at large, and those standards of proof may be very different from yours. Now, what convinces you may not convince them, whoever the, the world at large happens to be that you're trying to convince. So, the first statement I wanted to make in this show is, for anybody here listening who's thinking about act actively going out in the field, sit down, even if you have to get start a journal or a notebook or a piece of paper, write out exactly what it is that you want to accomplish. Are you trying to prove it just to yourself? Are you just going out to have a good time? Or are you trying to prove it to the biology department at the university close to you? Are you trying to prove it to the world through the news media? And because when you once you make that decision it is going to directly impact the investigative techniques and the level of rigor that you're going to have to go through in order to meet your goals i just wanted to state that up front to anybody who's listening to this show well you know salient point and you know i'm sorry to say this i'm just going to say it but you know if your stated goal is you're going to prove the existence of this as a uh, biological species you only have one goal now. You have to meet the criteria necessary for a uh, accredited research university to accept what you find and place it in taxonomy. And if you do that, well, guess what? You have graduated into the pro-kill uh, camp, mm -hmm. clan, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. because you're going to have to produce a specimen. I don't care how much tertiary evidence, secondary evidence you gather. These people are not going to basically put their uh, academic reputation on the line because you have a hair. All of the DNA evidence I've heard of to date has been inconclusive. You know, the, and when you try to find or you research and say, you, you know, listen, will this claim in such and such a place, Washington, prove that this was from an unknown primate? Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, you can't, it's really hard to work back and find this written proof that this was from, mm -hmm. you, you know what I'm saying, oh, Steve? Yeah. It's like, yeah. it, a lot of people make claims that, oh, well, this was from something between a human and a chimp. Right. Okay, well... If that really were the case, Washington State University or UCLA, somebody with a viable bio biology department, zoology department, they'd be hopping on this with both feet. They'd be pushing you down to get you out of the way so that oh, they yeah. could go out there and make the discovery. Yeah, Grover Krantz once said in an interview I saw, and if you're not familiar with, with Dr. Krantz, he was an anthropologist that was active in the Pacific Northwest and who 
unfortunately passed away 10 years ago, maybe? Maybe even longer. That was longer than that, man. Yeah. And he said in an interview one time, he, he said not only did he not particularly enjoy the Bigfoot aspect of his career, he just felt it was something that had to be done. He said one of the biggest impacts on the community, if the animal ever proved to be real, was that all of the amateurs would get shoved out of the woods and the professionals would take over. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of a sudden, you would find your access to potential habitats and all of that suddenly cut off because once the animal, if the animal ever gets proven to exist, then once the professionals and the academics take over, it's pretty much going to be a closed crime scene. Yeah, I mean, it, the simple truth is that you're going to see hundreds of square miles of land suddenly become yeah. uh, untenable mm-hmm. for you to, to, you know, because I think, you know, and, and I hate to say this, and I know I'm skipping around a little bit, but, you know, I wonder sometimes if there's an active resistance to people actually discovering something out there simply because, you know, there are lots of large corporations who own vast tracts of woodland and they really, really wouldn't want this to be discovered because they would lose their logging access. Even back in the 70s when some of the bigger, I think even John Green, Apes Among Us book of it talks about it. I know the Rene DeHinden book uh, with Don Hunter talks about it from way back, which is the first book I'd ever read on the subject. They had talked about they believed that there was an active conspiracy among the timber countries, uh, the timber companies in the Pacific Northwest, about making sure that that evidence of Sasquatch never came to light because of that very fear. They fear that they would lose a lot of their lands that they had contracts on or options on for timber because it would it would immediately be, be declared natural habitat and off limits. And also, there's another aspect too, which uh, I've heard referred to sometimes as, as the mountain lion conspiracy. Mm-hmm. And what that is is that um, it's known that um, according to science, the eastern cougar's been extinct for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only population of, of mountain lions or cougars or cougars, whatever you want to call them, here in the eastern United States is a very small population in Florida mm-hmm. that supposedly if you listen to the scientist, does not radiate very far from Minnesota, Florida. Um, but if you look in the news, if you talk to people who've been out in the woods, panther sightings in the eastern United States are not only occurring, they are actually rather commonplace. Yes. Uh, but one of the reasons that has been put forth by some individuals is why the state biologists do not acknowledge that these animals exist is because if they were to acknowledge that they exist, these are large, potentially dangerous, free-roaming predatory animals to which the public, not, I mean, (coughs) not surprisingly, would demand of their public authorities, well, these are large, dangerous, predatory animals roaming around potentially my neighborhood. What are you doing to protect me from them? Which is a legitimate question. And at the same time, you know, the, the public authority says, well, they're free-roaming predatory wild animals. There's not a whole lot we can do to, to, to protect wow. your dog, your Fifi in, sitting in the backyard from getting snatched. And uh, if you have that kind of public attitude about known animals, I mean, would you, be the, would you want to be the one at the mayor's office who's getting the phone calls, you know, after the day after the somebody somewhere proved that there are eight-foot-tall hairy apes wandering around in the woods. Oh, I know. What are you doing to protect us from this, Mr. Mayor? This is a public health hazard. I'm not doing anything to protect you. (laughs) You better lock your door. You're on your own, bro. Yeah. And for most of the public, it's probably not an acceptable answer. So the easiest way for for a lot of the the, uh, public authorities to to deal with it is just saying, we have no evidence that that exists. We're not going to worry about it. Well, you know what? It's smoking fire. And, you know, you bring up the Eastern Cougar. It's interesting. It's been 20 years now. But I I wrote an article which elements were published in Georgia Outdoor News back probably around 2000, 2001, sometime in that time frame. And I actually served uh, the Department of Natural Resources with a Freedom of Information Act, which technically in Georgia, it's under the Georgia Sunshine Laws is what it's called. 
But it, the same thing. I, I got the research, got it in, and did an Excel spreadsheet and charted all of the disparate uh, reports from out the state. And there, there really wasn't any particular area that was free of reports except perhaps uh, Atlanta, Fulton County, mm-hmm. you know, downtown Macon, those sorts of Bibb County, those, those sorts of areas that are really, truly urban. But something did really uh, stick out that I found in my research, which was that Southwest Georgia area, mm-hmm. man, we, over the time period, which, and I don't know, it was only like a, a 10, 15 year span of time that the reports had been gathered. You had nearly 200 mm-hmm. reports of these, you know, cougars, panthers is what people call them mm-hmm. here. Uh, sometimes in, you know, black panthers, sometimes just, you know, a regular old uh, cougar was reported, <coughs> uh, you know. So I, I just feel like, you know, smoke and fire. Where there's smoke, there's fire. And a lot of these people, especially in the south i don't know how it is in other parts of the country but you know when my area was very rural i spent a large majority of my youth Mm -hmm. tracking around the woods Mm -hmm. i'm familiar with everything that you run into out there Mm -hmm. that's an indigenous animal Mm -hmm. you know so i just i find it hard to believe other than just pure hoax hoax or hoaxing or you know for whatever reason that a a person who's genuine who reports seeing a cougar you know they're going to know at least from biology in school that you know oh look that's not supposed to be here that's a cougar yeah yeah so i agree with you a hundred percent that you know you really cannot i think as an investigator it's like we used to say in uh, the Baptist church. You, you eat the meat and spit out the bones. You, yeah. you know, you, you can't really uh, rely necessarily on real candor mm-hmm. from governmental entities yeah. about what's really going on. So you have to, from the get-go, kind of cling to what your eyes and your senses tell you and what your intuition says versus, well, you know, the, the Georgia DNR says there are no cougars in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, you know, that's their position. Mm-hmm. You know, but you talk to a farmer down in Darity County <clears throat> who butts up to the river and he's lost three goats. Yeah. He might have a different opinion as to whether or not. Yeah, especially if he saw one dragging one of his goats down the road with him. There you go. Yeah. And he can say, well, you know, the gang board just, said this, but. Yeah, and just, I mean, just looking at it more or less subjectively, I mean, if you. Imagine all the, there are two mountain lion populations in North America. Yes, there's the, there's the supposedly isolated population, the Florida panther. Right. Then you have the western puma. Right. Which is all western United States. Eastern puma is supposed to have been extinct for probably over 100 years now. But an individual panther has a natural range that could extend over two, three, four states. Sure. I mean, when yeah, you really at think least. about it. And over the last hundred years, it's very difficult for me to imagine that all of the Florida Panthers have stayed in Florida, or all of the Western Pumas have stayed west of the Rockies or, or whatever the demarcation line is, that at least some specimens have not wandered back east. Sure. To me, that's just. I mean, even if even if they're not west, even if they're not original eastern pumas that are being sighted nowadays, uh, it's hard to believe that it, there's it's not a western puma that has gradually nosed its way over east, or a Florida panther that's gradually nosed its way north. Because there's, as we all know, there's not a hell of a lot between Central Florida and here. No, not, no. I mean, not you know, not. <laughs> Except woods. Right. I mean, the the way that these animals would travel, they're going to travel waterways anyway. Yeah, river basins, swamps, and all that. And there's there's a direct line between those populations and here. Mm-hmm. 
if you were to trace it out on a map, it's not like, you know, an individual would have to walk through downtown New York City to get here. Right. I mean, you know, they could make their way, I mean, especially if they're hunting. And now our deer population is such... Loaded. Has Yes. yes it's a, there's no real predation other than hunting season here. So they would have ample food. Mm-hmm. And since they're opportunistic predators, they'll eat dogs, cats, rats, bats, mm-hmm. deer... Yeah. Garbage. I mean, so, you know, there's lots of food Heads. items. <laughs> so, you know, it's. I just think uh, it's a no-brainer. And, you know, you're talking about cats ranging like that. In Arizona and South New Mexico, mm-hmm. along the, uh, in the, I believe it's the Sierra Mountains out there. But, you know, they've, they've taken game camera footage of jaguars. Mm-hmm. So if a jaguar has winded its way up from Central America and he's hunting the mountains of South New Mexico. Uh-huh. Sorry, I think that, you know, we can accept that we're going to have lots of movement yeah. from these animals. And we have illegal immigrant jaguars. Think of that. Yeah, I no know. No papers, nothing. Nothing. Just come across the border Dang. eating those uh, delicious New Mexican deer. That's right. Well, let's turn. I'm going to turn now and we're going to go and look at more technical aspect of this. And I'm going to say, as a, a former police investigator, uh, one thing that you have to do as an investigator with integrity, okay, you may be that guy, okay? You may be, you know, you got the Bigfoot pictures in the wall, you got some Bigfoot statues, <clears throat> you got a Bigfoot frisbee you picked up at the conference, you know. Four T-shirts, you know, gone squashing hat, squatching. I said squashing. Yeah, you may even have that big silhouette on the wall. That's right, the big <laughs> silhouette. On, okay, that's fine that you're on fire. You know, uh, that's great. And and I'm not down on that. I, in fact, I promote that. You know, this is a short life. Go out and do the things that you enjoy. Okay, this is not what I'm saying. But if you're going to have integrity as an investigator. When you go into a scene, you cannot immediately begin to bend the evidence to fit your narrative. Okay? That's a no-no. You have to be objective as an investigator, and you have to go into the scene, and you have to gather the evidence, and the evidence being all of the evidence. Okay? A lot of times people get frustrated. They've they've wanted to see this animal or being or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And they decide, you know, I see this evidence, and it it could have been tampered with. Somebody could have, but I, you know, it to me it's proof. This is just proof, and I'm going to record it as proof. Well, okay, you've bent the narrative at that point if you don't note in any kind of investigation that this footprint, this claw mark, whatever, could have been created by something else, mm-hmm. essentially. You know, you could take a garden drill, make some terrible claw marks on yeah. the side of, not, you know, like a house or something, mm-hmm. and say, oh, this is where Bigfoot scraped the house, you know? Yeah. But <clears throat> you really have got to note that there were some strange scratches. You need mm-hmm. to take a photograph of it and be honest when you gather the evidence. Also, if you find something that you don't like or don't believe in, you can't exclude that from your investi- investigatory file. Again, you're bending the evidence. Mm-hmm. A real investigator, if we let's just suppose we're working on a murder, mm-hmm. and you go into a living room where the murder is taking place, you have a cadaver there. Uh-huh. At that point, as an investigator, you should begin to examine the body. A number one. Then. Well, you know what, I skipped a step. Mm-hmm. The truth is, you should photograph it, mm-hmm. take measurements first. And, and let me put this, you know, and I'm going to help you out there because I'm a patriotic American and, you know, I love our domestic measurement systems, etc. The Imperial Gallon, all of that. That's great. That's right. But the simple truth is, you know, we, we've got to get real. If you want this to be accepted in science, go get yourself 
metric measurement equipment. I don't do that anymore. If, if I'm working a scene now, everything's metric. Now, if I write it up as a report or I publish it or do something, mm. I'm going to make the conversion in parentheses behind it for yeah. your convenience. Yeah. But the initial measurement is going to be metric. Oh. Now, I, I know you're probably sitting out there, well, where in the world do I find this stuff? I, here you go, enasco.com, E-N-A-S-C-O.com. Go into their scientific catalog. It's for school. But they have very, I mean, they have anything you possibly could want to measure with. Length, I mean, weight. Uh, they even sell clinometers. Mm -hmm. And you can get a handy app on your uh, cell phone to have a clinometer right there with you so that you can measure height from distance and angles. Mm -hmm. These are the sorts of things in the metric system that you need to have. Uh, yeah, because I'd like to say that um, <clears throat> this is coming from the engineering world. Uh, SAE measurements, is, which is generally in the technical world what the English system is called, is good in America. A lot of places still accept it, but you have to understand the metric system is the international standard. Right. For instance, because if you do come up with good evidence and you, have, and you happen to present it, it may not only be presented in North America, where they still understand SE. You know, your your findings may end up in Europe, or Africa, or Asia, or someplace, and, and those places are all 100% metric. So just keep that in mind. Well, I know it's a departure. A lot of people, you know, they want to run down to a, a big box, you know, home place and buy some tapes. Yeah. And you know what? In some tapes now. Uh, measuring tapes is what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Some tapes are dual. I've seen that more common since things yeah, are coming them, out yeah. of China a lot. They'll be inch on one side, centimeters on the other. That's right. Yeah. So that's great, but you really need to invest yourself in this. And the, the thing about eNASCO is they're pretty cheap, really. Mm -hmm. You can you can buy a gross of measuring tapes, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Yeah. So. You know, avail yourself of that and begin to use the metric system so that you can measure these things. And like Steve said, get up and now you can present internationally. Uh -huh. And just take the extra time. I know yeah. it might be, there's so many conversion tools on the internet now. Uh -huh. You just pump in the, the metric measurement, convert it, put it in parentheses uh -huh. behind it. Yeah. And nowadays with our public education stuff, I mean, this, uh, for, for a lot of decades now, uh, people have been educated in the metric system as well as SAE in school, so it's not like the old days where you, where you say, okay, this site is five and a half kilometers from here, and they look, oh, what? Right, they have <laughs> no idea. About? Yeah, but just before we get into more technical stuff, I do want to touch uh, and expand on, on past comments about the, the collecting evidence in the field and, and how to make sure that you get or, or making sure that you gather everything. A as an investigator, just, just to use Pat's uh, previous life as a police officer, the job of a police officer is to gather evidence. Mm -hmm. But it is not up to the police officer generally to determine what constitutes proof or not. That's right. That's up to somebody else. That's up to a district attorney or a solicitor or a judge That's right. who actually decides whether or not that's proof in the case. What the officer's job is to do is to gather and present all the evidence. And then there are other people who figure out and decide whether or not it constitutes proof enough to, for a conviction. Right. When you're out in the field, it's the same thing. You have to gather and present evidence. Whether or not it constitutes proof is not up to you. It's gonna be up to a university professor. It's gonna be up to a professional academic. Right. It's gonna be up to politicians. It's not going to be up to you. I mean, even if you've got the body, you're not, you're, you're not going to be the one that's going to go in front of CNN news cameras and say, I've got proof that this animal exists. It's going to be the Jeff Meldrums of the world. It's going to be anthropologists. It's going to be scientists who make that determination. So don't think about anything you gather as this is what's going to prove it. You just have to think about it in terms of, okay, we have more evidence to add to our database, and we hope to get to the point where the evidence we have will persuade the scientists who are, who are the determiners of proof 
that that is what they actually have. You know what? You're exactly correct. I mean, that's it in a nutshell, that you're there to gather all. And I keep emphasizing all because in the past, having dealt with people from different and diverse backgrounds and organizations, you know, you doing an interview or, or with a witness, and I've had witnesses I've talked to after these people were there, and the person's, you know, they're telling me a story, but then they say, yeah, well, but those people said that, you know, that wasn't possible. So I said, well, well wait a minute, what wasn't possible? Well, you know, that, you know, he disappeared in a flash of light. Mm-hmm. Right. So what did they tell you? Well, they said that we're just going to leave that out, that probably I just had an hallucination mm-hmm. that, you know, he just walked in the woods and I was so frightened. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, when you a, a person, you're interviewing a person, and you start doing that foolishness, uh-huh. okay, I'm sorry that you might not believe in the extra dimensionality of Bigfoot. Uh-huh. Okay, that's that's fine. That's your mm-hmm. right. Yeah. <clears throat> but as an investigator, you have no integrity. If you interview a witness and you don't include everything that the witness tells you. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not telling you yeah. to be so open-minded that your brain falls out. Uh-huh. Okay, But you've got to be uh, a person who is thorough, mm-hmm. who is fastidious, and you really need to record an exact copy of what the witness says. In fact, as an investigator, if I really can't do a sit-down recorded interview with you, this I made this a rule a couple, three years ago, if you're not willing to sit down and trust me for confidentiality, which I, you know, as an investigator, if you talk to me, I'll tell you up front, everything you say is going to be between you and me. I won't publish anything you say, you know, unless I get your permission, and then if you don't want your name included, I, you know, I'll fall on the hand grenade. I just won't... Uh, I'll just put it out there, and if people doubt it, well, they'll just have to doubt it. Mm-hmm. But that's the point. As, as a, yeah. an, an, an investigator with integrity, you've got to do these things. Because you have to get yourself in the mind frame. It's like Pat and I discussed in a, in a previous episode. This is, this is, it's not a game of thinking about, okay, I'm going to find that one piece that's going to prove it. You have to get yourself out of that, that mindset. This is a data game. Right. And what you're doing is you're building a database. That's right. And one of the things is it's it's an old joke among investigators. So there are three sides to every story. There is one guy's side. There's the opposite side, and then there's what really happened. That's right. And you have to fit. You have to get one and two, and then sit down and figure out three. Right. That's what every police officer usually has to do because no witness is going to tell the whole thing. You have to put it all together and then try to figure out what the hell really happened. Right. And, you know, with HIPAA laws being what they are now mm-hmm. and those sorts of things, with medical medical issues, okay, you're interviewing a witness. Well, the person may have genuinely in their mind mm-hmm. seen something that you feel is completely unbelievable. Mm-hmm. However, we don't know whether or not the person's on a prescribed psychotropic drug. Yeah. And unless the person is willing to volunteer to you mm-hmm. this information, Yeah. And then, unfortunately, you really have to have sort of a background to understand and know what these drugs do. Fortunately, mm-hmm. I do because yeah. of my background. But, yeah. y- you know, still, you can, in your narrative, it's a conclusion, it's a summary. You can yeah. cast doubt and say, uh-huh. look, I don't buy this, but this is what the witness reported. Yeah. I can, You know, that's your area where you can shine and say your opinion. Yeah. But the narrative itself is the narrative. And you have to cling to what the witness says. There's a very fine line between facts and interpretation of facts. And what that is is that if I go out and investigate, let's say, a panther sighting. Right. Okay. And I've used this example before. And you talk to the witness and he's saying, man, I heard this blood-curdling female human-like scream like somebody being murdered in my backyard, blah, blah, blah. Now, when you're interviewing a witness who's describing an event that happened previously, okay, that the event has long since happened, all the actors are, are long gone, you have to remember that you're not being presented with facts from the witness as much as the witness's interpretation of those facts. Right. Okay. The witness is telling you he, he heard a panther scream. 
But at the same time, in the back of your mind, you say, well, did he hear, did he hear a panther scream? Was it some other kind of animal? Or did he really hear a scream at all? Was he just imagining it because he's easily suggestible, he's under the influence of psychotropic drugs, or you know, whatever? So you have to deal with interpretations. Now, that's already a trap that you're probably going to fall in more than a few times when you go out in the field and start doing investigations. But you, and, and as we're talking about this is a database game, you have to be careful not to compound the problem with adding your own in, interpretations to those facts by the time it gets into your personal database. As Pat has been emphasizing, you have to gather everything as it is and leave, don't try to filter it out right then with your own interpretation of what you think it ought to be. You have to get in the mindset that this is a database game and everything, no matter how wacky you may think it is at the time, needs to go in that database as you received it. Mm -hmm. Because the time to put your interpretation on the data is not then. That comes much later. Mm -hmm. Once you gather your database, then you can go back and start examining it and then it becomes a game of statistics. And now if that weird story ends up being an outlier, that's the time to deal with it, but not at the time you're receiving the data. Right. Interpretation comes much later. Right. Well, I mean, you know, in, if you even do a point chart, uh -huh. all right, these animals, I've done 20 uh, investigations. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, 17 of the investigations pretty much line up the same way. And if you do a point chart, you're going to see that the, the data elements that you have input into the chart mm -hmm. are going to show that. Yeah. There may be a little variation, but you'll have a column of points uh -huh. that are pretty uniform. Then you have two points that are way off. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. and it's like, well, okay, these guys are not fitting the general profile uh -huh. of what people are reporting in the area. Yeah. Okay. But it's a lot smarter what yeah, to do. But it's, but it's, yeah, but it's, it's judging the data comes way after the gathering of the data. Right. You don't filter the data as you gather it. You gather it all together, then you examine it as a mass of data, and then you make the interpretation because there are scientifically accepted tools you can, which you can use that when you use them, you exclude the outliers, you know, the wacky, you know, the wacky, you know, he stepped off the UFO with Elvis. Right. To, you know, there are accepted scientific methods for excluding that type of data when it comes time to do that. But when you're out gathering evidence in the field is not the time to do that because you never know the kind of facts you'll miss. And I'll give you an example. When I was very early a teenager and I was, I was going back and I was really starting to get into paranormal things and reading, I had read John Green's Apes Among Us and Ivan Sanderson's book on the Yeti and, and Don, uh, Rene de Hinden and Don Hunter's book on Bigfoot and all, all of the uh, Peter Burns books and all that. And one of the things I remember being struck by was a lot of the sightings in the woods entailed witness descriptions of the creature rocking back and forth in wow. sort of a rhythmic way. And when you read the books, and you read the, the data that was interpreted. Now, the nice thing about John Green and Ivan Sanderson and those folks is that they were not the greatest, but actually pretty good at being careful not to exclude data at the time they were recording it. They right. knew that, that the interpretation came later. So they were recording everything that the witness said, no matter whether it made sense or not. So you would read these accounts of the, the swaying back and forth motion in the woods and the the investigator would would you know respond okay that's and well what else did you see okay and they would just kind of pass it over just just you know just okay you saw that and it was quite a few years as a matter of fact I don't think it was probably in the 90s or maybe early 2000s that some investigator actually went back and and looked at those and tried to figure out what all this swaying back and forth business was after decades and decades and decades of that little tidbit being reported and nobody really making any comment on it. Well, come to find out that if you're in the woods with a lot of trees around and you see something in the, in the distance amongst the trees and you're trying to determine how far away that object is, 
if they sat there and you just kind of swayed back and forth and kind of just gradually and smoothly changed your angle of view from one side to the other, come to find out that you can actually get a fairly good um, uh, estimate of how far away an object is because like trees that are closer to you move more than trees that are farther away from you if you sway back and forth and look at that object. Mm -hmm. A tree that's closer goes way and the tree that's way doesn't move a little bit. And so you can get a good visual estimate of how far away an object is and these, the researcher, and I don't remember who it is, went back and looked at those data and it became obvious that all of those reports that reported that little tidbit, the creature was looking at the observer. I mean, the, they knew they were being watched. And the creature was obviously trying to get an estimate of how far away the observer was from the creature. So, so they could decide if they were going to run away or stand there, they were going to have to fight, you know, whatever animal instinct drove them. But, uh, you know, if back in the day, John Green or, or Ivan Sanderson or Bernard Hoeflmans or whoever was hearing these reports decided that, well, that's inconsequential, that sounds kind of kooky, I'm going to leave it out. Mm -hmm. We would have never known of that behavior characteristic. And you know, interesting, anecdotally, <clears throat> the rocking back and forth motion is in human beings and in primates mm -hmm. a real sign of anxiety, mm -hmm. uh, indecision, yeah. don't know what's going on. I've caught myself mm -hmm. when I'm sitting really thinking about something that's important yeah. and I'm trying to make a decision, uh -huh. I'll find myself uh -huh. gently making that motion. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, you know, it's something yeah. that... There could be several aspects to that's what we're trying to say. Right. It, uh -huh. So it got included. Uh -huh. Well, you know, how many murder cases have been solved because later mm -hmm. they found that one piece of evidence that the detective kept. Yeah. And it, you know, lots of DNA stuff now mm -hmm. have come back and said, oh, well, we were able to get DNA off and yeah. prove that yeah. so-and-so didn't do it. Yeah. That's true. And DNA brings up another interesting thing, because I, <laughs> I don't know, Pat, your views about DNA's place in the Bigfoot investigation, but I think it is, it is one giant trap for the unwary. Well, I think that it can be. If, if, in, my, in my ethos, or my view of this, I think that as an investigator, if you come across something with a, a follicle on a piece of hair and it's obviously not from a human or animal source and you collect it, mm -hmm. then it should be collected and it should be examined. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, can you trust mm -hmm. the examiner? Because guys, I mean, let's just be, let's just be honest. I mean, th there is a, a lot of... Um, Resistance. Let's just use the word resistance. There's a lot of resistance to discovering the true nature of what this phenomena is. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, you if you're not sending it to somebody who really has credential, mm -hmm. you know, you, you can run it down to the local DNA place that they use for paternity tests or yeah. whatever, uh -huh. you know, but... That's not going to carry the weight it would if yeah. you went to FBI or, well, FBI used to carry a lot of yeah. weight, I mean, unfortunately, yeah. but, you know, somebody who has a well-known 100-year established track mm -hmm. record of being able to identify stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in the, in the Bigfoot, just using the Bigfoot world, there is a huge difference between... DNA testing and what it can accomplish in the world of police work right? versus what it can accomplish in, in terms of Bigfoot. The reason being is that the human genotype is pretty well known. I mean, we know without a doubt what the entire string of DNA of a human being looks like. I mean, down to, I mean, we can test paternity, we can look for genetic diseases, we can look for all sorts of things. We have none of that for Sasquatch if it exists. We have no DNA to compare it to. And not only is that an issue because there is no type specimen of DNA to compare anything to, 
we're dealing with an animal that more than likely, if it's an animal, I'm just, and I'm using the, the flesh and blood thing again, mm -hmm. that's my natural basis, is that if it's a flesh and blood animal and you do get a DNA of it, it's probably going to end up with the same problem you have with chimpanzees. Now, if you compare chimpanzee DNA to human DNA, it's like a 99 point something, something, something match. And let's say if you, we did not have a wild chimpanzee, we had no DNA string of a chimpanzee to compare it with, and somebody gets a piece of flesh of a chimpanzee and say, hey, I found this, this weird animal. Could you say that the people who are examining so-called Sasquatch DNA nowadays, if they were given chimpanzee DNA and they had never seen or heard of a chimpanzee before, would they be able to distinguish it using their known tests that they use now between that and a human being? Or would they just say, man, this looks human to me, I think you got human, it's undetermined? Well, I think most of these people, first off, they, you know, once they get the actual DNA strand out, a computer is going to do the work of typing it to something that's known. Well, the thing is, I mean, if, if it's like, like the chimpanzee examination, there's, there's like less than 1% difference. Right. I think much less than 1% difference between the DNA of a human and the DNA of a chimp. If we didn't accept that chimps existed, let's say we didn't have a, DNA, a full DNA string of a chimp to compare to, okay, and we got a little bit of chimp DNA and we gave it to one of these investigators, would they come back and say, this is too close to human, this may be a human? Yeah, you know, it's probably a human. It's this, yeah, okay. We have the same problem with the Sasquatch because we have no DNA to compare to. And it's kind of a joke when you can when you think about DNA evidence is that, well, the only way DNA evidence is going to mean anything is if we have a type specimen of DNA to compare it to to say, yeah, man, that's Sasquatch, there's no doubt about it. But then it's a, it's kind of backwards because if you had a type specimen that you knew 100% was Sasquatch, then you've already solved the mystery without DNA because in order to... In order to get a piece of DNA that you knew 100% was a Sasquatch, it pretty much would have to come from a dead body. So it's like, you know, I've, I, as an investigator, I sit back and I look at all these discussions about trace evidence of DNA that they're trying to examine. And if you just kind of sit and think through it logically, it's all a rabbit hole because there's nothing to compare it to. I mean, the best you could hope for ever in a DNA analysis of evidence is undetermined. Right. Because you have no comparison. Well, you know, we always come back. Let me put this uh, little tidbit in there. Plastic is your enemy in gathering evidence. Okay, I know what you see on television. And if you're dealing with an inanimate object that's not biologic in origin, you can get away with the plastic bags, a gun, a, a hammer, you know. Mm -hmm. But if you're dealing with blood, feces, hair follicles, mm -hmm. you need to get paper evidence bags, okay? You can buy them online. You just look up evidence bags paper in a, a search engine. I'm sure they're going to point you to, to Gauls or any of the police sort of supply houses that exist. But get paper because paper allows it to dry naturally, doesn't destroy, you know, the evidence itself. A lot of times plastic, especially with blood, uh, if you put it in plastic, it will mold mm. because it seals it so well. It doesn't allow airflow and it doesn't allow it to dry. You, you, you know, if you're one of those people that's taking home poo, well, you know, I, I, you just have to go get you some brown paper bags or... Probably colored. Yeah, yeah, you write poo on the outside. Do something on the outside so that, you know, don't open this if you have a weak stomach. and You know, but, but allow it to dry. And, you know, as far as the body goes, I'm sorry, I'm just going to be a pessimist here. Uh, let's say you do get a body. If you do get a body, they're not going to let you keep it. I'm just telling you. If you are silly enough to let the press know, if you go, you know, let's say you're that one in a million guy. You're out there, or, or lady, you're out there and you just happen upon a cadaver or you take one 
uh, in an ambush or something, somehow you have obtained a Sasquatch body. My strongest suggestion to you is to get the body out of the woods if you can survive getting it out. Take it home, put it under a tarp, put some ice on it, go buy a U-Haul or rent a U-Haul van rather, uh, or something to transport a U-Haul truck. Get as much dry ice and stuff as you can and pack it and take off to Idaho State University and get there and, you know, drag Jeff Meldrum out and say, look, man, look what I found. And allow him with the backing and the power of that university behind him mm-hmm. to reveal to the world that this exists. Mm-hmm. Because I promise you, if you let it be known, somebody in a black car in a suit with a badge mm-hmm. is going to show up and they're going to threaten you. They're going to say, you know what? We're going to put you under the jail. You're going to Leavenworth, Kansas, pal. And we've heard stories to that effect. Um, but uh, also, as Kranz uh, and Meldrum have both pointed out in the past, it's you don't really have to save the entire body, even. Uh, a significant portion of the body, they say, would do it. Um, Grover Krantz was in favor of if you found a body or were to shoot one, if you couldn't keep the whole body, just cut off the head. Or even that, just the lower jaw, they said would be what the scientists would call diagnostic, which means that would be the one thing that would indicate it's a unique animal. But uh, if you're not able to keep the entire body, just keep a piece of it. But either way, you really, really, really need to keep your mouth shut. Mm -hmm. And you need to transport this item or body, cadaver items to somebody like Jeff Meldrum. Mm -hmm so that they can coordinate and they can release this information as a unified front. Because once this happens, there's going to be a cascade effect in our society about this. If, in, Even though, you know, I'm down to the 30-40% range that this might possibly be a flesh and blood animal, I always keep my mind open to the possibility that it is a flesh and blood animal. Mm-hmm. And perhaps we have... Uh, concurrent mm-hmm. phenomena taking place, yeah. okay? Yeah. And that's been a theory for a long time is that, well, you do have one sort of animal that acts like an animal. Uh-huh. But on the other hand, you have these things that are walking up and cutting the ignition off in the car mm-hmm. from the outside, yeah. those sorts of things. So, you know, could we be looking at concurrent phenomena? Yes. Mm-hmm. So say you look up and you get the, the flesh and blood cousin of it. And, you know, if you don't want to take Bigfoot like that, you know, I'm not trying to offend anybody. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, I've gone through periods during my time that if Bigfoot walked through the living room with popcorn, I would have just looked around him at the TV. It'd just yeah. be real with you. I've gone through that. It's like, you know, I don't care. I don't want to know about They'd him. They'd both be sitting on the couch watching TV. That's like right. Probably he, eating the same popcorn. Eating the same popcorn. <laughs> so, hey, guy, you know, okay, well, thanks for letting me know. Taking me off the hook. I know that you're real now. You need <laughs> to take a shower. Yeah. Just uh, just for for the entertainment value, because we did, we did try to, to prom- promise to provide you some entertaining uh, conversation. I wanted to relate a story that I had heard while I was on an investigation in Alabama. I was told by local investigators in Alabama that there is a town in Alabama called Steele, which is mm-hmm. in the, uh, I guess, north-northwest corner of Alabama. And there was, there was a story that was told to me that there was a, a high society uh, person, I think, who was the mayor of that town, way back in the day, this is decades and decades ago, who was a very prominent citizen in the town and also liked to hunt, was a very big hunter. And when he was mayor of the town, in the little building they had for the city hall, there was a room that contained his hunting trophies, deer heads, antlers, um, whatever animal that he had, he had managed to bag. He would have taxidermy and there was a little display there of his hunting stuff. This this is rural Alabama, probably in the 50s or so. And uh, apparently the story was that he was out in the woods and bagged what these investigators believed was a juvenile Sasquatch. Hmm. 
and it was ape-like, upright, uh, perhaps four or five feet tall. And uh, as he was wont to do, he added it, he added taxidermy there locally and added it to his collection. And supposedly this this stuffed whatever it was was on display in this room in Steele, Alabama, for going on 30 years. Mm-hmm. And one day, uh, the story goes that um, they got a rare visit from one of the uh, officials of the Alabama state government who apparently was over the uh, Alabama's version of the DNR, Department Mm -hmm. of Natural Resources. And they happened to show up in the city hall and saw the display and saw this creature and pitched an absolute hissy fit and confiscated it on the spot. And it was never seen or heard of again. And uh, I heard heard that story and uh, found it interesting and that they said that they had actually managed to interview a secretary from that city hall who worked back in the day who actually remembered that particular creature being on display. And I have never been able to go over there and uh, see, look in the records and see if, go back in the old newspapers, if there was any photographs of this display. Or if, or if any records of, of the city hall or anything like that that would lead in any direction, I've never been able to. But that's one of the interesting stories and black hat type of stories that you hear about what what can happen. Mm-hmm. I have no idea if all of that's true, but it was related to me back then, and I, I just throw that out there as an interesting, hopefully entertaining story. Well, I, you know what I think is a given that. Uh governmental agencies understand and know that this phenomenon has taken place. You know, we discussed the fact that uh, 1970s, you know, they're, they're taking photographs of people's car tags from 250 miles up in space. Yeah. Okay? These guys have real technology. They're not limping along like we are. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm getting high school science stuff and, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm doing the best I can on my limited budget and, you know, I'm old crip broke back guy and I'm out trying to do this stuff. You know, they don't have that, man. They got helicopters, they've got surveillance planes. So if there is something out there, let me assure you, they know it's there. Hmm. Now, they may not be able to make up their mind about what they're going to do with it. Yeah. But nothing happens by chance. Let me tell you this. Uh, and it'll probably be the last thing to say before we conclude this episode. But let me say that uh, we're going to continue this same line of thought next week in, in the, the second investigatory show. Nothing happens in government that there hasn't been a decision made. Okay? People think things are, are like their own personal life, that everything's by, you know, oh, well, it's happenstance. Well, it's not happenstance. Everything you see dealing with the government, there has been a committee. Somebody has sat down. There has been a decision made, and things happen that way. So, you know, as far as, like, I think we just have to accept. That's, you know, that's why I tell someone who's out there, whether you're a seasoned investigator and you're just listening to us, you know, for the the goof of it, or if you're, you're really getting started interested in this. That's why I say confidentiality in what you find is going to be important because you let it out in the media. The media doesn't care about your well-being. The media cares about ratings. So you get out there, you know, you get resistant to these people. These are serious people. Serious people. Let me emphasize that to you. So... You know, don't tell your best friend at the general store. Don't call the president of your local Bigfoot investigatory club. You just need to go find Jeff Meldrum. You need to take it and go out there. And I'm putting this on Jeff Meldrum because he's the only legitimate scientist that I know right now that I know would back you. And, you know, he would help you. You guys could work with his university. I'm sure that... He's probably thought this through. How are we going to approach this mm-hmm. when this creature is discovered? Mm-hmm. You know, do the things I said. Pack it and dry eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, get the thing out there in a concealed way. You know, maybe take your brother-in-law, if you could trust him, <laughs> and drive straight through. You know, don't don't stop to sleep in Omaha, Nebraska, or 
or you know what because you wake up and if if the word is out your new hall will be gone <laughs> you'll be sitting in a motel six in omaha alaska yeah. or, or, or nebraska rather uh-huh. going what happened you know, where did, where did the truck go? We didn't tell anybody. Well, I did tell Sandra. Oh. Yeah. You were talking by your by your smartphone, and it was on, and it was listening to what you were saying. Yeah, and, you know, bottom line is, if you're really serious about this, you're going to have to have protocol, and you're going to have to adhere to it. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's, we're going to conclude this week, and tune in next week, and we're going to continue this uh, same theme as we talk about investigation. And then uh, we're going to depart a little bit from that the following week. I think we're going to investigate or talk about investigating the river monsters that are apparently uh, in Georgia, Steve. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting stuff. Uh, the Ultima Ha Ha. Uh, you have know. to be careful when I go fishing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> anyway, thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed it, and we'll see you next week. Bye, guys.